This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Okay, we are live. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Remnant Radio. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the controversy behind end times, the four kind of primary controversial theological topics when it comes to eschatology. Uh, uh, before we introduce you to our guests, I want to let you know a little bit about Remnant Radio, who we are and what we do. Uh, Remnant Radio is a theology broadcast. We stream every Monday night, 830. Whoa. Just kidding. Monday new time. At 4 p.m. Uh, Central Note Standard Time. Note the new time, time guys. Tuesday at 4 p.m. Central Standard Time. We don't stream Monday night at 8.30. That's going to be hard to stop saying. Uh, but we're a theology broadcast. We interview pastors and teachers from different churches and denominations. Uh, we, Anglicans, Methodists, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Baptists. Our goal is to kind of suspend our presuppositions and study God's word and learn from our Christian brothers, uh, whom many of them we disagree with. But our goal uh, is just to make sure that we're challenging ourselves to study God's word as God's word and not nullify it by our tradition and our own theological echo chamber. We're entirely crowdfunded. If you want to support us, you can give on uh, PayPal, one-time gift, or uh, you can give on Patreon, be a monthly giver as low as five bucks a month and get tons of extra content. To my left, you're right. We have Michael Roundtree, the co-host yes. of Remnant Radio. Yes. And speaking of extra content, we just filmed some That's right. for our Patreon account. We try to do that uh, every week and so, most every week at least. And, uh, and so we're always trying to put that out there as a thank you to those those of you who have supported this ministry and uh, just wanted to give you guys just a little bit of uh, a glimpse of kind of what's ahead and what's to come uh, and what we just did. Start with what we just did. Yeah. Uh, New Year's Eve. Many of you will be familiar with it. We uh, that video has gone. I don't know. It's gone remnant viral. For it's sure. viral it's for, us. for us. I mean, yeah. 30,000 views in three days. I mean, that's pretty, pretty, darn good. Uh, pretty great. So uh, anyway, we did a, a marathon testing prophecies. So people shared their prophecies and kind of well-known voices in the charismatic world. And uh, the scripture tells us of first, Teth- uh, first Thessalonians five to test everything. And so we did. And I think the the results were quite interesting. That's so right. make sure you check it out. It's time stamped because it's eight hours long. So you can find your little segment that you want to listen to. Had uh, Dr. Michael Brown and um, <coughs> had Dr. Michael Brown on it and uh, Jack Deere, Sam Storms and many more. So uh, anyway, we had that. And then uh, but I want you guys to for sure know about our new schedule for the new year. Uh, because Josh is now full-time at Remnant Radio, uh, we're going to start doing more daytime broadcast, daytime for us in Central Time. Uh, so 4 o'clock Central Time, Mondays, Tuesdays, and then we'll also have a Wednesday show. We're going to have three shows a week. From 4 to 5. From 4 to 5 each time. So it's going to be at the same time, the first three days of the week. Monday and Tuesday will be our interviews. And then Wednesday, former co-host of Remnant Radio, Michael Miller is going to be joining us uh, for a podcast. We're, we're kind of floating names for it right now. But it is going to be about the gifts of the Holy Spirit and that specific topic. So yeah. um, anyway, so that's going to be coming up. That won't be this Wednesday. That'll start in a week. Yeah, why the time change, Simeon asks? Well, because if I'm full-time, I don't have to work a full-time job and miss a night with my wife and kids. Right. I can just spend during regular work hours. Josh has typically worked a separate (laughs) full-time job, and then Remnant's been on top of that, so he's had to do it at night. But uh, anyway, without further ado, let's jump into this topic. So uh, Dean Davis is on the other line with us right now. And uh, Dean, if you could just maybe take a moment, introduce us to yourself, introduce us to your ministry and just any any resources or books or websites or ways that we can connect you. uh, That would be great. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. well, I'll. uh... I'll be brief. First of all, thank you both so much for having me. I consider it a real privilege. Um, My name is Dean Davis. I live here in Santa Rosa, California. 
served as a pastor for probably oh, about 35 years. I'm retired now and have devoted a lot of my time to writing primarily, although occasionally I'll do a few seminars. Um, the book that we'll be discussing today is The High King of Heaven, and um, I've written that and several others. I'll, um, I'll interrupt you for a moment, Dean. Here is the book, High King of Heaven. Definitely recommend this to you guys. It's got a, uh, it actually has an endorsement from Dr. Sam Storms, who's uh, kind of a crowd favorite on the show, and he's always on. Josh, is everything good? With I'm having technology? a nervous attack. Like I'm like, why is this not working? I'm trying to click the button as it switches to you. I got it. I got it up finally. Okay. Yeah, I, was, sure I just saw your jaw drops. Okay. Anyway, it's a thick book, but it will answer every question you've ever had about the end times. So wow. uh, a great, That's a great a resource. That's a lofty claim. Well, um, you're saying this book can solve every it, eschatological controversy. We'll see. We'll see. So, because you said he, it was the most, it, the scope of this book is simply breathtaking. That's what <laughs> Sam said. Nice. So, okay. Well, okay. So I interrupted you. I wanted to show them the book, but uh, continue along, Dean. Well, I wanted to mention, uh, I have really tried to make this book as available as possible because it's big and fat. It gets expensive. So I. I decided to make it available on Kindle for $2.99. So you can download the Kindle app onto your computer. So if, if you're out there in the uh, in faraway lands and you're very poor, by all means, don't let that stop you. I, I really would like you to enjoy that that book. Um, they're at Redemption Press, which is my publisher. They I've asked them to sell it at the lowest possible price in hard copy, so you can get it for about eighteen dollars there, and that should help you. Um, nothing much else. I I uh, I do have a website. Um, the name of my ministry is Come Let Us Reason, and if you'll just Google that in and with my name attached, you'll find the website. I did want to mention um, that a friend of mine. Uh, uh, kindred a millennial spirit named Sean McGrath has start has put together a beautiful website, uh, basically presenting biblical eschatology from an a millennial point of view, and the address there is amillennialism.wordpress.com. So okay. those are a few sources for your for your listeners. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, the cat is out of the bag. He is all millennial, but you're going to hear a little bit more about that. Now, um, you call it the great end times debate. Uh, so, Dean, could you just maybe introduce us to the nature of the debate? What are the kind of key points that we need to be thinking about with regard to this debate? Very good. Uh, I would like to do that. Well, I do call it the great end time debate. And probably most people find eschatology pretty intimidating because there's so many points of view out there. Um, so I want to, first of all, talk about the debate, and then I'll talk about the points of view, and I'll keep this short. When you're dealing with eschatology, most of us are concerned with what I would refer to as the consummation or the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that will happen when he returns. I would call that the narrow focus or the narrow view of the debate. But there's a little bit better way, I think, a more biblical way of thinking about the debate. I would like to say that the broad view of the debate is, what is the nature and the structure of what we call salvation history? Most people, when they read the Bible, they kind of create a mental timeline. You have the creation, you have the fall, you have a long era of preparation, and then you have the first coming of Christ, which inaugurates what I call an era of fulfillment. And where the debate enters in is there's a lot of different pictures or scenarios about what that era of fulfillment looks like. So I would define the great end time debate. The wide view is that it's about nature and structure of salvation history, and especially about the last days or the era of fulfillment. One of my goals in writing the book and one of my goals in speaking with you today is to try to assure you that I think, in the end, the solution to this debate is pretty simple, and I'm going to try to present that to you. 
Let me go through the contestants in the debate very briefly. And I'm going to do this in what I consider to be the proper historical order, chronological order. First of all, you have amillennialism, which appeared very early in church history, and it was enshrined in the Didache and the Apostles' Creed, and is in the default eschatology of the Reformed Protestant movement pretty much right along. Amillennialism says that you have the first coming of Christ, and then at the end of the present evil age, after a difficult season, which I like to call the last battle, the Lord Jesus will return once. And he, at that time, will raise the dead. He will transform the living saints. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will destroy the present earth and cosmos with fire. And he will introduce the new heavens and the new earth. So the amillennial view has a very simple view of the consummation. And this is what intrigued me about it when I first ran across it when I was in seminary so many years ago. The second contestant is what I would call historic premillennialism, and basically it goes like this. The historic premillennial view interprets Old Testament prophecies of the kingdom fairly literally, and as a result, they're looking for a stage in salvation history where that literal interpretation of Old Testament prophecies fits in. So, the Lord comes once, at the end of the present evil age, we have a last battle, a great tribulation, then Christ comes, but there is a partial resurrection, a partial judgment, and a partial recreation, which leads into a literal 1,000-year millennium, in which these Old Testament kingdom prophecies can be more or less literally fulfilled. At the end of the millennium, you have the consummation of the consummation in the last judgment and the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. One thing to note when you're thinking about eschatology is as soon as you introduce a millennium, a future millennium, you begin to multiply these eschatological events which Scripture says Christ will perform. That would include resurrections, transformations of living saints, the last judgment, and so forth. And to me, this is a tip-off that there's something wrong with premillennialism, because the Bible is pretty consistent in looking for a single return of Christ, a single resurrection, a single judgment. We can talk about that a little bit later. The third contestant in the ring is postmillennialism. It's kind of a kissing cousin of amillennialism, but it has a very optimistic view of the course of the era of proclamation. The view is that as the gospel goes forth from the church, things will be getting better and better and better. Some postmillenarians start the millennium with the conversion of the Jews sometime during the gospel era, and they feel that that will trigger uh, the binding of Satan and the advance of the kingdom. And, the, and, and basically, when the Lord returns, he will return to a Christianized world. So this is the super optimistic eschatology, but it does view the consummation as a single return of Christ. The fourth one, which is sort of a Johnny-come-lately, is dispensational premillennialism. And Without getting into the weeds on this, because I'm sure you both, you all know that it's a very complex system. <laughs> it's a form of premillennialism that adds a pre-tribulation rapture. So you have the first coming of Christ, you have an era of gospel proclamation, then you have a secret rapture. Seven years later, you have the second coming of Christ, which inaugurates the millennium. And then at the end of the millennium, you have the, the consummation of the consummation. Now, I think it's very useful to note that in dispensationalism, you really have three consummations, or you might want to prefer to say a three-stage consummation. You have a rapture, then you have the second coming, and then you have another coming at the end of the millennium. So it's getting pretty complicated and my conviction is, and it has been for going on now 50 years, that the Lord really wants his sheep, who tend to be simple, 
to understand eschatology, and therefore he would probably make it simple. So it creates a bias in me that this is too complicated to be true. The final view, the final contestant in the ring is a view called preterism. And um, this, again, can get a little bit complicated, but basically you have two schools of preterism. Partial preterists, such as R.C. R.C. Sproul, Hank Hanegraaff, and others, would say Christ comes once, the era of proclamation unfolds. But many of the prophecies that Jesus gave were fulfilled in 70 A.D. at the, at the uh, destruction of Jerusalem. And so partial preterism does look for a glorious second coming of Christ, kind of like a millenarian does, but they feel that many of the end-time events were fulfilled in 70 AD. For example, they believe that the Antichrist was Nero, um, and the Great Tribulation took place during the Battle of Jerusalem and so forth. The final contestant is the full preterist, who basically says the consummation occurred in 70 AD, and I'm unclear as to how the full preterist actually views the future of the physical universe, but after 70 AD, when you die, you enter the new heavens and the new earth. So those are the contestants in the ring, and I admit that it can get a little complicated, but here's something to simplify it. If you really look beyond all the trees to the basic debate, you have two fundamental different opinions, two different contestants. One of them is what I would call present millenarians. They believe that the thousand years of Revelation 20 symbolize the era of gospel proclamation. And then you have future millenarians who believe, no, thousand years is literal, and it begins at the second coming of Christ. Most of these views can be categorized either present millennial or future millennial. So that's the big question, I think, uh, Mike and Josh, that we want to try to solve in the great time, end time debate. So I've, I've heard, um, I, I don't, I don't want to misquote you, so you'll have to correct me if I get just the general uh, portions of it correct. You said uh, amillennialism was the default historical position of the early church. And again, you, you feel free to correct that if that wasn't a perfect quote. Um, uh, I've also heard that said of post-mill or partial preterists. They'll also make the claim that there was a church father who believes exactly what they believe. Um, uh, Premillennials will say that often, and too. And because post-mill, yeah, that's right. Uh, and because post-millennialism is so close to amillennialism, is there a real way to distinguish the difference in the early church fathers? Well, I... Um I am not a great student of the church fathers. I, I know a little bit about who tilted premillennial and who tilted post. Um, it has always been difficult to sort out Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, because there's kind of a blending there between the fulfillment that took place in 70 AD and then the fulfillment, which I believe will take place at the end of the age, so there are preterist interpretations, I'm sure, in the ancient church of some of the things that the Lord said. The post-millennial view, the, the earliest father that I know who tilted post-millennial would be Augustine. He was actually quite optimistic about the progress of the gospel. He felt that the world would be Christianized. My understanding is that he believed that uh, the thousand years was literal, and by the time you got to 1000 AD, you would have a very, very christianized world yeah i i've read before that uh clement of rome as well as ignatius um and i think both of these were disciples of john who wrote revelation um at least in accordance with church history that they were amillennial is that correct in your understanding uh, my my uh, research was done in a book called The Momentous Event by William J. Greer, and I really appreciated his historical researches, he said the amillennial early fathers were Clement, Polycarp, the Didache, we don't know who the authors are for that, Barnabas of Rome, Caius, Hippolytus, and Origen. Um, the premillenarians included Papias, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and Tertullian. So there was a division there. Uh, none of them 
believed in a in a millennium that was characterized by the reascension of the Jewish people. They were, it was a very Christian version of the millennium. Uh, the more Jewish emphasis came in after the Reformation, according to my understanding. Yeah. Okay. So we've talked about all these different uh, these uh, different perspectives. Here's here's I think the question that, and this is what really interested me. What you said that that you think it's actually possible for us to resolve this debate. You know, we had somebody in our chat saying, you know, like I'm a pan millennialist, and you know, it's all going to pan out. It's all going to pan out in the end. So, um, is it really possible for us to for the church to come together in our eschatology? Yeah. yeah. Well, <clears throat> you know, I'm sure from Ephesians that that we are all on a journey towards truth. But to answer your question in simplicity, it's it takes time. But I believe as church history unfolds, we get more and more light. We have great light now on justification, for example, or the Trinity. And I believe the answer is yes, we can we can get an answer to the, to and resolve the great end time debate. Um, let me say a few words on that if I could. Sure, please. Because I think this probably is the single most takeaway from our time today. Um, I'm going to talk as we go further this afternoon about the four underlying issues in the debate, but I, I want to talk about what I call the super underlying issue. <laughs> the <laughs> one big issue, and that, of course, is hermeneutics. How do you interpret the Bible? And in particular, how do you interpret Old Testament prophecies of the kingdom of God and the book of Revelation? Do you interpret them essentially literally, which typically generates a future millennial view, or do you interpret them figuratively, typologically, as being fulfilled under the new covenant, and therefore in the church and in the two stages of the kingdom of God that Christ taught about? Now, how shall we interpret those, those two areas, Old Testament, kingdom prophecy, and Revelation 20? Here's a text that really has helped me great, a great deal. Um, when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, he appeared to his disciples in glory, and to, on one side he had Moses, on the other side he had Elijah. And of course, Moses represents the law, and Elijah represents the prophets. So Peter gets a bright idea, uh, a brainwave. He says, we're going to build three temples, three shelters here, three tents, one for you, Lord, and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And God the Father in his glory descends upon the situation and he says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And I, I felt the Holy Spirit really quickened that to me. He's saying to us that the Lord Jesus Christ is... The, the final arbiter in all areas of doctrine, including eschatology, and including how it is we should interpret Old Testament king prophecy, kingdom prophecies, and the book of Revelation. We listen to Christ. Now, question is, how exactly do you do that? How do you listen to Christ? Here's the three rules that I think ultimately will bring every listener and every viewer that's really seeking the truth on eschatology, I think these three rules will ultimately bring them to the amillennial position. First of all, you anchor to what I call the didactic New Testament, and that's a big fancy expression, just means anchor to the Gospels and anchor to the Epistles. Those are the didactic or teaching portions of the New Testament. If you build your eschatology on Daniel 9, or if you build it on Zechariah 12 through 14, or if you build it on the Revelation, you are sure to fall off a cliff. The reason is that God the Father said, I want you to listen to him. He is the supreme teacher above the law, above the prophets. He will help you understand what they meant. So the first rule is anchor to the didactic New Testament. The second rule is realize that Divine revelation was progressive. Now, let me just explain this as simply as I can. In eternity past, according to the Reformed theology that I embrace, 
God decreed an eternal covenant, a covenant of grace. And you can find the essence of that covenant in John 3.16. This was his plan of salvation. God, who's, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God is the, is the party in the covenant. The believer in Jesus is the human party. Christ is the mediator of the covenant. The promise of the covenant is eternal life. This is the plan that God settled upon. In Old Testament times, God revealed this plan, but he did so under types and shadows. I like to speak of this as a veiled revelation of the eternal covenant. A good example is the Passover. You see that the Passover lamb was slaughtered. It was placed over the doorpost and the lintel of the Israelites. And in the judgment, the final judgment, God passed over it. It's a type, it's a shadow, it's a picture of the things of the eternal covenant, the things of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're going to understand Old Testament kingdom prophecy, you have to understand that God veiled his truth in Old Testament times using the imagery drawn from history and nature and the law. And then in the New Testament, when Jesus appears, we have a full unveiling of what was hidden in times past. So when he speaks on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish. I came to fulfill them. I came to fulfill in history the meaning of what they pointed towards, and I also came to give you the ability to understand them. Mm -hmm. So that's the second rule. And the third rule, which is just flows from that, is anchor to the new covenant hermeneutic. When you go into the Old Testament, you need to use the new covenant hermeneutic. Well, what's that? Augustine said it this way, and I just think it's so wonderful because it's so terse and pithy. He said, the old covenant is the new covenant concealed. The new covenant is the old covenant revealed. Mm -hmm. That helps you to disentangle and interpret correctly all these Old Testament kingdom prophecies, which our premillennial brothers want to interpret literally, but that will take you to the understanding that no, those were Types and those prophecies use typological language to point forward to the things of the new covenant that would appear in history in the last days. When the Old Testament prophets spoke of the last days, they were speaking of the days of the new covenant. And so we must interpret what they said in light of the fulfillment under the new covenant. So I'd say there, that's my arrow. I've shot my arrow on the super underlying issue of the great end time debate. And I think if you'll really think about that, it will ultimately help you to resolve it uh, and understand it. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read back these to make sure that we're succinct. And then I want to read a comment from uh, Donald uh, Kamer, K-A-M-M-E-R. Um, so your, your, your points are didactic New Testament. So stick to the didactic uh teachings of the New Testament, realize that divine revelation is progressive, that uh, things continue to be illumined, uh, and then also the, know, the, make sure that your, your hermeneutic of eschatology is anchored in a new covenant hermeneutics, um, that yeah. the, the, the Old Testament is present, but it's revealed in the New Testament. It's not that that, that other revelation is inferior, but that it's, it's being, again, expounded upon. It's kind of a further articulation of your second point there. Um, uh, this is what... Uh, Donald says, and even before I read this, there's almost 200 of you watching this program. Drop a like. I've got 18 likes in here. This is ridiculous. Come on, guys. Come on. The show ain't free. You know, you got to give us something. Okay. So uh, the, 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 the problem with here, let's, let's read Donald's comment. The problem with anchoring uh, the didactic uh, uh, anchoring to the didactic is that it assumes that historical texts have no didactic intent. Uh, what are your thoughts there in talking about these kind of historical eschatological uh, passages that are assuming that they don't have any didactic intent? H how would you, um, uh, uh, I guess, speak to Donald and those who have his position there? Um, am I understanding you to say that Old Testament Kingdom prophecies do not have a didactic intent. Is that the is that the gist of I, the question? I think the gist of the question is saying that like the the passages in Daniel that are historical, uh, that are more of a narrative text, that are speaking uh, 
prophetically. I know it's a prophetic literature, but it's happening historically that that's not didactic. He's suggesting that this, um, maybe like a Daniel 9, I that think that's he's actually suggesting a, a essentially text. all text is didactic, I think is yeah, the point all, that he's making. All text have some kind of didactic application, I think is what he's trying yeah. to say. My, my framework for using that expression, didactic New Testament, is the notion of fulfillment. Um, certainly, God intended to teach his Old Testament people certain principles, uh, historical truths, moral principles, and so forth. But the underlying or deep-seated meaning of them, he did not teach them openly. They were a mystery, as it says in the New Testament. So the Lord Jesus comes into the world, and he unveils the mystery of God, which is the gospel or the covenant of grace, and he teaches us the true deep underlying meaning of what was indeed taught to the Old Testament saints. Um, you have to have some place in the Bible where you are given the keys, the didactic keys to unlock the mysteries of history and the Old Testament law, its various institutions. Take, for example, uh, the institution of marriage. If you just read the Old Testament, you would say, well, that's an interesting story about how God created Adam and Eve. But when you get to Ephesians 5, you see that he was engaging in a typological historical act. He was creating a picture for us to understand how when God put Adam to sleep and opened up his side and took a rib out of him, he was giving us a picture of how he was going to put Christ to sleep and pull his church, his bride, out of him and bring the bride to him. So the didactic New Testament gives us the key or the interpretation to understanding the historical teaching of Scripture as well as all the law. Okay. Um, one of the one of the things that you talked when you talk about anchoring in the didactic New Testament. Um, I, I want to be, I want us to be clear here. Cause I, I don't want anyone to come at you with like a charge of Marcionism. Like we value some parts of the Bible, uh, higher than others. I know that you're not saying that. Um, and maybe you could clarify you're, you're not saying that it sounds like you're saying more. We interpret maybe, you know, sometimes they say, uh, interpret the unclear by the clear interpret. Uh, how would you word what you're trying to say? to make sure that it doesn't sound like we value some parts of the Bible more. All of Scripture is profitable, right? Second, Second Timothy, we understand that. But it's profitable for different purposes. I would love to preach uh, out of Genesis chapter 2 and the creation of marriage. That's one of my favorite sermons. It's very profitable. Um, but it, the didactic New Testament, in this case Ephesians 5 and other texts in Scripture, enables me to do so. So it's profitable in a different way. It, it, it profits me to be able to open up the rest of Scripture. You know, very few preachers will, will go into the Old Testament kingdom prophecies and preach out of them unless they're strong dispensationalists and then they'll interpret them literally. But many, many Christians are just afraid to read it. It just doesn't feel relevant to them. My contention is that if you master the didactic New Testament and the New Covenant hermeneutic, if you really, then you can go back in there and you can see Christ and you can see the church and you can use this as part of your testimony to the world and part of your ministry to the saints. The understanding that the didactic New Testament is the doorway into Old Testament kingdom prophecy and the revelation what it does is it, it gives you back the Bible. It gives you the whole Bible to preach from and to see Christ in. You remember when uh, in John chapter 5, Jesus said, um, you think that you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these are they that speak of me. This is the teacher. He's, God is saying, listen to the teacher. These are they that speak of me. All the Old Testament speaks of Christ and the eternal covenant. And we need the new the didactic New Testament to understand what it says. So uh, before we're going to get back on track with uh, some of our, uh, uh, you know, the, the 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 great end times debate, we'll get back on track with some of those questions. I have one more audience question before we do that. Uh, Chip, 
I can't pronounce your last name, Chip. It's just going to be Chip for now. Uh, he says, ask him why reformers like Martin Luther reject the book of Revelation. Uh, he said so, I guess, in, in one of these commentaries. I'm not sure which commentary he's referring to, but Chip only has so many characters in YouTube, so I'm not sure if he ran out of characters or uh, if uh, if he knows which specific commentary. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, so he says that Luther uh, is, is a reformer and he rejected the book of Revelation. Uh, he was asking, uh, why do you think that is? Well, I, first of all, I didn't know that he did. I know that Calvin found it too difficult to, and he just decided not to write a commentary on it, which I thought was a great loss. But I don't, I think the revelation found its way into the canon relatively safely. I don't think it was the anti-legomena book at all. Um, and I, I love it. It's a fabulous book, and I'd, I'd love to have the opportunity to talk about it with you folks. Yeah, yeah, well, he, yeah. I would. To be fair, he said the same about James. <laughs> that's true. He said the same about James, and I would say that uh, Chip, like James either. That was a right strong epistle. <laughs> I know for yeah. sure he didn't like James. If you can, if you can let us know, uh, uh, I guess the finality of that, with Chip. If you, if you do have the resource to send our way, I'd be interested in looking um, into that. When Martin uh, Luther first translated and published the New Testament, he thought Revelation should not have the same status or authority as the Gospels or letters of Paul or Peter. And so he put it at the end, but he didn't number it. So, okay. Uh, I don't know that he threw it out entirely. I, I My impression was that he just didn't like it as much. Oh, well, like lots of people. Uh, <laughs> so I put Leviticus at the end of my Bible. Okay, whatever. Okay, so, um, so yeah, let's come back to the great end times debate itself. You wanted to give us, uh, you wanted to give us these three interpretive principles. How does this play into the great end times debate and beginning to settle it? I'm having a little trouble hearing you there, Mike. Would you say okay. that again? Yeah. Sure. So you wanted to give us these three principles for interpreting the Old Testament. So how does this play into the Great End Times debate? Oh, well, with your permission, maybe we can go on to these four underlying issues because they that's very, very important. Um, and uh, Please I'll, do. I'll yeah. show you how the didactic New Testament gets uh, relates to each of those issues sure that sound like a plan please do, do. all right well let's talk a minute let's talk about uh first of all let's identify the four issues then i'll say a few words about the kingdom of god and i think this will be very helpful um the elements of of eschatology are rather numerous um i've enumerated them the kingdom of god the millennium the Antichrist, the last battle, the second coming of Christ, the resurrection, the transformation of the living saints, the catching up of the saints into the air, sometimes referred to as the rapture, the last judgment, um, the great conflagration at the end of history, the burning up of the universe, essentially, <clears throat> and the creating of the new heavens and the new earth. Those are the elements of eschatology. But as I thought about it and, and meditated on this over the years, I felt that, I hope, I trust it was the Lord who said, these are the four underlying issues. If you can resolve these four underlying issues, then this, the picture of salvation history that you're looking for will, be, will come, into, come into view. So the first issue is the kingdom of God. What is the nature of the kingdom? And what is the structure of the kingdom? And basically, how many stages does it enter the world? And the second one is the one that we've been talking about, the proper interpretation of Old Testament kingdom prophecy. The third one is the meaning of the millennium. And then the fourth one is the consummation or the nature and the structure of the consummation. If you take your didactic New Testament, which is the Gospels and the Epistles, and you bring those four questions to them, I believe if you study hard and get down on your prayer bones and open your heart to the Holy Ghost, you will come out an amillenarian. And that's a, a wonderful, wonderful, simple approach to solving the problem. Now, let me give you the first example here, and you guys feel free to interrupt me if I'm getting too long-winded, because I, I don't want to be rude on your on your wonderful show. <laughs> but let's, <laughs> let's talk a minute about the kingdom of God. When Jesus came into the world, he said, he, he, he picked up the message of John the Baptist, and he said, this is the good news. The kingdom of God is in hand. In the, in the Gospel of Matthew, it's the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Repent and believe the good news. So the message of Christ is the kingdom of God. Now, the Jewish expectation was actually quite similar to many of our premillenarian brothers. They believed that the Messiah would come and establish a theocratic kingdom. He would be a latter-day David, a descendant of David. He would use his supernatural powers and maybe his military powers to expel Rome. He would then begin to extend the religion and the, and the influence of the Lord across the earth, and the Mosaic law would spread across the world. And then after a certain season of time, which the Jews referred to as the days of the Messiah, there would be a great consummation, uh, a, a final battle, a final resurrection, a final judgment. So the Jews were looking for a theocratic, Davidic, mosaic covenant, uh, not covenant, but kingdom. That was the vision that they had. It was based upon a pretty literal interpretation of Old Testament kingdom prophecies. But what did Jesus say about the kingdom? What was his understanding? It's not of this now, world. Yeah. I, I, my my go-to text on this is John chapter 3. He, Nicodemus comes to Christ and he says, he says, you know, Teacher, we know you're you know we know you're a teacher come from God. No man can do these miracles that you're doing unless God is with him. Jesus goes straight to the issue that is burning in Nicodemus's heart. Are you the Messiah? Are you bringing the kingdom? And he says, "Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man is born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God." And then he further discusses with Nicodemus the the spiritual rebirth they go into a great discussion on can a man be born twice etc and he talks about how this birth comes about through the holy spirit and then very interestingly he says as the son of just as the uh, serpent was lifted up on on a pole so the son of man must be lifted up so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life he's saying that the kingdom of god is a direct spiritual reign of God the Father through faith in the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is entered through the preaching of the gospel and repentance and faith towards Christ. So what he's doing here is establishing, no, the kingdom of God is not some theocracy, and I'm not going to start an army, and if you try to put me as a king, I'm going to just <laughs> disappear, <laughs> and I'm going to give you a lecture on bread. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> now, the kingdom of God is, is, is the result of the new birth. So at least now we know from John chapter 3, there's a first spiritual stage of the kingdom. Well, now... What about the structure of the kingdom? There, we want to go over to Matthew 13. And let me stress, if you're going to stu study the didactic New Testament, go first and foremost on the issue of the kingdom of God to Matthew 13, the mysteries of the kingdom. Uh, I'll bring this to a close very simply here. If you will study the parable of the wheat and the tares, you will see that the Lord Jesus envisions a season in which the wheat and the tares are growing together, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, the followers of Christ, the followers of Satan. The reason that they're living together is because emissaries from the kingdom of God are going over to the tares and preaching the gospel in hopes that they'll be turned from tares into wheat. Then he says, at the end of the age, the Son of Man will set forth his angels, and he will return, and he will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend. And then the, 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 the wheat, the sons of God, the children of God will shine in the glory of their Father, in the kingdom of their Father. So he identifies two stages to the kingdom of God. The tares will be taken out of his kingdom, the kingdom of the Son of Man, and they and the wheat will enter into the kingdom of the Father. So I think that the mysteries of the kingdom and all the other parables and the entire didactic New Testament teach that the kingdom of God enters history in two stages. 
The first stage begins with the death and resurrection of Christ, and especially when the Spirit is outpoured. I identify the beginning of the kingdom of God, the entrance of the kingdom of God into the world. I identify that as the day of Pentecost. That's when they were born again. That's when the Nicodemus promise began to be fulfilled. And then the kingdom of the Son, or the era of proclamation, unfolds below these 2,000 years now. And at the end of the age, Christ will return. He sends forth his angels. He gathers out of the kingdom those who are the tares. He gathers all of his saints to himself at the parousia. The world, a new world, a new heavens and new earth is created. And he enters, and then you enter into the eternal state, the kingdom of the Father, what I would call the era of reward and retribution. The key thing here is that the didactic New Testament, which you find in Matthew 13, other parables, and all throughout the epistles, the book of Acts, teaches that the kingdom enters the world in two distinct sages, separated by a single parousia at the end of the age, a single coming again of Christ. So that's, if you believe that and understand that this new covenant which and this kingdom which Christ has introduced. Let me go back. The promise of the eternal covenant or the new covenant is eternal life. But you could just as well say the promise is the kingdom of God. You get to be born again. You get to enter the kingdom of the Son. You get to be transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. You now have eternal life. They're basically identical. So if you... If you anchor to the didactic New Testament and you realize that all of these kingdom promises which you find back in the Old Testament are fulfilled in this simple two-stage kingdom, there is absolutely no way that you can interpret Old Testament prophecies in a literal manner. You are forced to interpret them typologically, figuratively as being fulfilled under one or the other stage of the kingdom of God. End of end of spiel. Okay. Could you expand on that a little bit? Uh, maybe give us an example of an Old Testament kingdom prophecy that a premillennial might understand literally. That- I'd, I'd be very happy to. Um, I was going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the principles involved, but if you'd like, I'd be very happy to do that. Yes, please. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Why don't, why don't we do that? I think an example might help here. Uh, so maybe an Old Testament kingdom prophecy that given the hermeneutic that you just spelled out, the manner of interpretation you just spelled out, uh, that we're, we're demanded, we must interpret this uh, more figuratively. Yeah. Would, would you like me to give a few thoughts on it or just take you to one and show you? Uh, maybe just take us to one and show us. Oh, I'd love to do it. Let's if any if all of you who are out there in TV land have your Bible open to Psalm two. Um, I could give a couple of examples, but I thought this would be a very a very good one. Okay, I like this one because you can see how an Old Testament uh, Jewish saint would read it, but then you can also, if you're at all familiar with the didactic New Testament, the Book of Acts and and uh, Hebrews and so forth, you'll know that this is the and this is interpreted for us by the New Testament, okay? So okay. let's just read it together. I'm reading out of the New American Standard. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah or his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast the cords away from us. So we know from the New Testament that at least in part, this was fulfilled at the crucifixion of Christ, right? Mm-hmm. Acts chapter 4, I believe it is, they, they, they are praying and they specifically quote this. And they say, Herod and the Jewish people were gathered together against the, the Lord and his Messiah. Now let's read a little further. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Now, if you were an Old Testament Jew, you'd say, oh, boy, I can't wait. 
the descendant of David is going to sit on the physical Mount Zion, and there he is going to rule and reign, and he's, there's going to be a great temple, and the gospel will go forth, and and uh, not the gospel, but the law will go forth, and the kingdom will advance from Zion. But we know from the New Testament that this is not fulfilled physically or literally. It's a spiritual fulfillment. God the Father has seated Christ on the Zion above. Hebrews 12 says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, but you come to the heavenly Zion. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. So God the Father has seated Christ in the heavenlies. The didactic New Testament has revealed for us the mystical meaning of what the prophet here was saying. Now, this is very interesting. Now, this is the voice of Christ speaking. If you go down to verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord or of my Father. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, if you go to Acts 13, when Paul was preaching at Antioch, he specifically spoke of this text, and he said its fulfillment consists in the resurrection of Christ, who was begotten but from the dead by God the Father, and he was installed as the firstborn over all creation at the Father's right hand. It has a spiritual fulfillment in the heavenly reign of Christ or the kingdom of the Son. Now, what is the reward that God the Father has for his Son? Verse 8. Ask of me as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Now, a Jew would read that and say, man, we're going to get an army together. We're going to wipe out all those, those heathens. But no. The gospel fulfillment is that God the Father is giving him a people, he's giving him a bride as the church goes forth, then the bride is gathered in as a, as a possession, as a people for his own possession. So there's a fulfillment, an evangelistic or new covenant fulfillment of that text. Then he says, you shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall shatter them like the earthenware. Several times in the New Testament, this verse is quoted in reference to the second coming of Christ. It's not a warlike Messiah who goes forth and he, and he bashes the nations into submission. No, this is the last judgment when he returns and all who did not submit to him are judged. And so now you have, boy, wouldn't you love to just preach out of this, Michael, next Sunday, this next verse. <laughs> now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do what? Kiss the Son. Do homage to the Son so that he does not become angry and you perish in the way. His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take their refuge from him. What a precious gospel text. Refuge yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ. Flee the wrath to come because Christ is your refuge. So, the didactic New Testament found in the book of Acts, found in the epistles, helps me to unlock the mystical meaning of the Psalm number two. The premillenarian or the, or the, the Orthodox Jew is still looking for a literal earthly interpretation of this. But the New, Covenant said, the New Testament said, no, it's spiritually fulfilled in the invisible kingdom of the Son, which will eventually at second coming of Christ give way uh, to a visible kingdom of the Father. So um, there are people in the in the comment section. I think that might have misunderstood your your uh, that we even asked you to unpack in talking about the didactic text taking uh, like a primary focus or an interpretive lens as the as the illuminated data, the illuminated doctrine of eschatology, um, in in understanding the other genres of literature in light of what is clear. That's correct. Um, so, so I, I want to just kind of continue to reiterate. This is a great example. You are not claiming that Psalms two is um, invalid, that it's uninspired, oh. that it's less, uh, it's less God's word. What you're saying is that oh. we see we see a didactic text making sense of prophetic literature um, or, or or Psalms or poetry, um, so that we're we're using our clear text to interpret the unclear, right? We'll all agree that poetry and prophecy that, are, are more vague. Let me give you an example of this. You remember 
you remember uh, when in Luke 24, when Jesus was speaking to the disciples of Emmaus, and he, he was opening up the, the scriptures to them, and their heart burned within them. And then he showed up among the 12, and, the, and he did the same thing. He, he showed how in the Old Testament all of these prophecies had to be fulfilled. And then there's this great line in Luke 24, I believe it's verse 24. He opened their mind to understand the scriptures. This is so precious. I mean, the Holy Spirit opens our mind to decode the typology and the mystical sense of the Old Testament. It's a beautiful text. It's all altogether inspired, altogether holy without, you know, every jot and tittle of the Old Testament is precious, but it's impenetrable. Second Corinthians 3, Paul says, there is a veil that's over the minds of the unbelieving Jew because he can't see it. He, his mind is not opened yet. But when he comes to Christ, the veil is taken away. So I, if, you, if you see that the Old Testament is veiled, then you can see you need the key to unveil it. And that would be the, the, the didactic New Testament. The reason dispensationalism went completely off the rails, and I love my dispensational brothers, but I must tell you, the, they anchored to Daniel 9, they anchored to the Revelation, they anchored to Old Testament prophecies, and they just, they just flew over the didactic New Testament, and they subordinated that to the Old Testament when the exact opposite is what God said. He said, listen to him, listen to Jesus Christ because he will open up the meaning of those mystical Old Testament verses, which are impenetrable. Okay. So uh, I'd like to summarize a little bit, and we're in a in just a few moments, we're going to have to conclude this episode, and we'll continue with a part two tomorrow. And for those of you who are looking for, like, total defense of one side or the other. It, he is defending amillennialism and that will continue tomorrow. However, he's really trying to lay a foundation here. And there are four areas that I want you guys to not miss that he's uh, he's begun to highlight two and tomorrow will be the next two. Uh, these four areas that if we can settle on the answer to these four, we can resolve the great end times debate. That's right. So, you got <laughs> so, Number one, the kingdom of God, its nature and structure. Number two, the proper interpretation of Old Testament kingdom prophecy. Those are the two we talked about today. Number yes. three, for tomorrow, the meaning of the millennium. Number four, the consummation, its purpose and structure. We're going to talk about those two tomorrow, but uh, allow me, what, I, what I'd like to do, uh, Dean, is just uh, explain my understanding of what you said and then have you correct me wherever I messed up. <laughs> okay. Um, cause I, I want to just make sure that everybody's on the same page here. Uh, so number one in that first category, uh, the kingdom of God, it's nature and structure. What I heard you, when you talked about the nature of it, you talked about that it's spiritual right now, that Jesus, uh, when he introduced the kingdom, for instance, to Nicodemus, you're born again, you can see the kingdom. So don't be looking for theocratic Israel to be reestablished and dominating planet Earth. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is now just as Jesus preached. So you, you taught that it was the spiritual nature now. And then you talked the structure of it. And you went to Matthew 13, the parables. So you had the, the parable of the wheat and the tares. And so during this present kingdom now reign of Christ, we also have a mixture of good and evil. And Satan is mixing in uh, the tares with the wheat. And and this will give way at the consummation, the, the parousia, that second coming of Jesus, uh, and I, that uh, that Jesus will come and he and he judges the wicked. At the exact same time that the righteous are caused to flourish forever and ever and ever. And yeah. so and so you you looked first at the nature and structure and that when we look at the didactic portions of the scripture that we're just we're, as you said, will be a millennial. So that was your first argument. Uh, and then your second argument, I believe, uh, under proper interpretation of Old Testament kingdom prophecy, I, I think I've maybe already touched on it a little bit but that we look, how did Jesus and the apostles 
interpret Old Testament kingdom prophecies. Right. And instead of looking at it like an Old Testament Jew might have, who uh, many of whom missed un, misunderstood those prophecies, expected theocratic Israel to be established and to kick Rome's butt. Instead of instead of looking at it like that, look at how the New Testament mm. interprets the old. And when you when you adopt that hermeneutic, then you'll interpret Psalm 2 a certain way and you'll interpret Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 2 and other passages a certain way. And so that's Michael's summation of what I think you just said. So please throw tomatoes at me. Michael, you could take it tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) So I've, I've, this is shocking to me because you're saying if you take the prophetic literature, literature literally, you're looking for a kingdom to be established now. And I'm looking at these groups of people after looking at these prophetic reviews, and these are people who are prophesying civil war and the kingdom now, and let's fight for this kingdom now. Like, they also take a oh, hyper-literal eschatology view. That's okay, shocking. I see. So, Dean, to just kind of let you in on on what he's talking about, and maybe you remember at the very beginning we had this, we talked about this, prophecy review marathon where we were reviewing um, prophecies that some charismatic Christians made about uh, 2020. And Josh, I guess, so the point that you're making is they have a highly literal eschatology that they're now applying in literal ways and some of some people calling for civil war. It seems to have a similar effect that I would say that they're having a more consistent pattern of eschatology as the, the Jewish people in the days of Jesus that caused them to miss Jesus coming. Yes. Um, well, I know that you grew up in a church that you called it Jew worship, where it was well, like... <laughs> that's almost... I didn't grow up in that church. Okay. Um, I was very much around a community without outing them. It would be hard to kind of articulate <laughs> who that was. But uh, yeah. So I worked for a very popular television broadcasting network that I, okay. I would have... I'm a, sorry. I didn't mean to yeah, throw you under the bus okay. there. It's too late now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish I could pull you out. That's no, okay. It happened. <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah. Okay, so I, I think what we'll do is we'll uh, we'll stop right there, and Dean, we'll continue with the with the next two tomorrow. If you guys are tuning in, tune in uh, tomorrow, four to five central time. We're going to talk about the meaning of the millennium and the consummation, its purpose and structure. And Dean is going to tie together all of these arguments for why he is a millennial. Now, uh, Remnant Radio, we have people from all perspectives. We've had pre-trib rapture, post-trib rapture, amillennial, pre-millennial, uh, post-millennial, and everything in between. So uh, so we have all of these perspectives on the show. Uh, I think what we'd like to do now, and Dean, this is something we always typically do, is uh, is is we ask for just a, a summary of just like maybe not even a summary, a golden nugget to yeah, take away. What's thought. your, what's your closing thought, your nugget that like, if there's one thing you want everybody to walk away with this time, what would it be? So I'll, I think my, I'm just going to throw mine out. Sure. We adopt the new Testament hermeneutic to interpret the old Testament. I like it. That's, that's the number one it for me. How did Jesus and the apostles interpret the Old Testament? That's how I want to do it. Let that's me good. say in my, in my book, and I'm doing an abridged version because nobody buys 700-page books out there. <laughs> in the book, I go through every single Old Testament kingdom prophecy that is cited in the New Testament. Mm. And in every case... They use what I just referred to, the New Covenant hermeneutic. They interpret it typologically as being, you know, veiled revelation of the New Covenant in every case. Then in the book, I also go through all of the premillennial favorites in the Old Testament, and I try as best I can. I'm not saying I did it perfectly, but I think I did a pretty good job. I take these principles of the New Covenant hermeneutic and I go into Isaiah 60 or I go into Zechariah 12 through 14 or I, like you said earlier uh, Isaiah 2 or Isaiah 9 Isaiah 11 and and Daniel and and to me it just was like a flower it just opened up so beautifully why because these prophets were speaking about us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And these verses are for us, and they, and they should fill us with joy, and they should fill us with preaching power. It's not some distant thing that happens a thousand years hence. It just isn't like that. 
anyway, that's my two bits. I, I'm, I hope I'm not overly enthusiastic. No, I love it. I think it's great. I'm excited uh, about things. <laughs> I'm really, I'm really thankful that you came on the show today and unpacked this for us. And I'm looking forward to tomorrow. Can you let us know uh, just briefly? I know Michael mentioned those two points. What do viewers have to look forward to tomorrow as we unpack uh, that next section? We'll look forward to it. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Look forward to it. That's a good thing to look forward to. What What, what exactly will we be unpacking is, uh, is my question. What exactly will we be unpacking uh, tomorrow? Talks. Go ahead. What would we be unpacking tomorrow in our next session? Oh, well, I think I'd like to very briefly go through the millennium. Uh, uh -huh. I think it's, I think it's a very easy subject to discuss. Probably could do it in 10 or 15 minutes. Then what I call a biblical scenario of the consummation. What is the, I was telling Michael earlier today, the, the plum, the peach, the prize of all eschatology is to have a clear conception of the consummation of the second coming of Christ. It is intended to be a stupendous source of spiritual courage and, and energy and power because we are going to need it in these last days. So I want people to understand the blessed hope of the church and how glorious it is so that they will be able to to be very strong and very courageous in the difficult days that are in front of us. Amen. Amen. That's uh, all it. we could hope for. Uh, for those of you who are out there, make sure to like, a subscribe, hope. share. That would be a blessed hope, wouldn't it? Uh, uh, yeah, like, subscribe, share. Make sure uh, to hit the subscribe button so you come out, uh, so that you get notified when we come out with content yeah. just like this. And sign up for Patreon. Uh, sign too. up for Patreon. We Help just released a, a video on released. We filmed the video. We're going to release it uh, probably here in the next hour or so uh, where we give commentary on some of the comments uh, from our New Year's Eve prophecy video. Go check that out if you haven't seen it. I think it's very informative and um, uh, it's uh, enlightening, I think, about the culture uh, and the place we are in the prophetic here in America. Um, trying to discern through that would be helpful for our listeners. So go check that out. I think it'd be yep. good. Uh, make sure to subscribe next Thanks. Tuesday. Oh yeah, thank you, thank you for coming on the show, Dean. We we appreciate your time. Uh, um, make sure that you subscribe. We're coming out with shows now Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday are our new show times, and all of those times are going to be four p.m. Central Standard Time. Uh, so it seems to work out. Seems to have uh, a good viewer retention around these time slots, and uh, we'll get to be home with our families, which is much in the needed. evenings. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. Stuff. Okay, guys, thanks so much for joining us. God bless you guys. See you tomorrow, four p.m. Blessings. want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.